We are in our 870th sermon in the book of Matthew. No, I'm just kidding. No, we're jumping into a Christmas series because we're over the book of Matthew right now. Uh, and so I want to talk to you about the Christmas story. And, and obviously, I've been, you've been thinking about Christmas. I've been thinking about Christmas. Christmas is everywhere. It's, it's on TV. It's in movies right now. You hear it on the radio. It's here at the church, right? Christmas is a big deal, obviously. And um, one memory kind of came to mind when I was thinking about Christmas this last week. So when I was a kid, my family decided we were going to throw a huge kind of Christmas party at our house. And we invited kind of the whole neighborhood and it was popping and, and there was a bunch of people there. And, and uh, I was in my room. Recently, I just got a PlayStation 1. You guys remember that old OG, like gray box brick thing? You know what I'm saying? So we were in my room. I think I was like maybe, I don't know, eight or nine. Um, and, and we're playing 007. Do you guys remember that game? Or Crash Bandicoot? What's up? You know what I'm saying, right? So anyways, um, we're, I'm playing this game where we're getting like high off Dr. Pepper and pizza and, and, uh, and, and we're having a blast and I'm, I'm having a fun time. And all of a sudden my dad comes in with his best friend and uh, barges open our door, grabs me by my ankles and drags me out my room in front of all my friends down the hall, don't want to fall off the stage, and then, uh, and then into the backyard in front of everybody. There's like 50 people at my house and, and everyone is... Uh, drunk. And so he drags me, picks me up and throws me in the pool. And everyone's cracking up. All my friends are like, Duh. you know, they're all laughing and they're cracking up. I'm the only one that laughing, right? I'm the one that's like, this is, this is terrible. Like, like, I'm like, and my dad's like, this is going to be a brilliant idea. It wasn't, it wasn't a brilliant idea. So I'm sitting in the pool, right? As I'm kind of bobbing in the pool and you know, those little blue bobbers that kind of bob with the water, you know, like they have chlorine tablets in it. I had a light bulb, boo, come on, right? And what I decided to do, is I was gonna open it up, grab all the chlorine, put them in my pants because I'm wearing pants because my dad threw me in the pool. And I, do, I, I go over into the garage where the washer is and I take my pants off and throw all the chlorine tablets in my pants in the washer. And then I grab all of my dad's clothes and I walk over to it and I just, and I just flip it in a rage and like turn it on. I walk away, only time I ever did laundry. And then I walk away, right? <laughs> And then, so his, his clothes come out straight technicolor, right? They, they, he looks like a hippie, right? So they're coming out crazy colors and whatnot, but I wasn't done because I was a kid that had problems. And so I, I walk over to, um, to his car, which is in the garage, and I decide I'm going to air out all the tires of his car because I knew he had to get up early the next morning. And I was hoping he was going to get fired and we'd be homeless. No, um, and so... So I'm still in a rage, right? So I walk over to the kitchen. I'm like pacing in the kitchen. I'm like, what can I do? What can I do? And I, boom, light bulb. So I go over to where those, uh, to our cabinet, big thing of salt. You know, those blue things, just the, like the, this blue sea salt things that are kind of big and they have like that metal thing you open up. I went over to his bed and it's just, just like putting all the salt in his bed and then I make his bed so he has no idea, right? I wasn't done. It gets worse. Um, and so I, I, <laughs> I walk back into the, uh, the kitchen and throw away the thing and another light bulb clicks on and I go, I know what's under the sink, all the cleaning supplies. So I open up, uh, open up the sink and I grab all the bottles of bleach and Windex and everything else in there. I open up all the tops and I put them around doors around our house. So when you open a door, it falls over and spills all over the ground, right? And it stains the carpet or whatever it is. Long story short, um, I just got uh, ungrounded last week. That was cool. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> So long story short is I was grounded all throughout the Christmas season, right? And, and the, the, the money that my parents were going to use to buy me gifts went towards my dad's new clothes and, and counseling for the next four years, but that was cool. But so I tell you that story really to tell you this, is if you're anything like me, when you think about the Christmas season, or maybe you have memories back when you were a kid and the Christmas season was kind of like a challenging time. And it was a challenging time because man, families are sometimes just 
intense, right? That can be stress-filled, stress it has drama. There can be a lot of different things going on in a lot of different families. And one of the things I've learned is Christmas means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. In fact, some of you guys may have memories of losing loved ones during the season. And so when you enter into the Christmas season, it means something a little different to you. Or maybe uh, you had the news years ago or even recently that your parents were getting divorced during that time. And so Christmas means something a little different to you. Whatever it is, if your childhood was maybe anything like mine, Christmas was kind of stressful. I had a lot of unique kind of dynamics playing into the Christmas season. I, did, I had a kind of big Italian wild family. Everyone was alcoholic, so it was a party. <laughs> it was lit, and so it was crazy. And, and so I always kind of just felt like, oh, it's like my aunts and uncles have to come over, like, you know, like, or whatever it is. Or you have to like sometimes act fake. You know what I'm talking about, right? Like you're super excited to see that one family member, right? You're like, I'm so excited to see you in the back of your head. You're like, I can never see you again. It would be great, right? Or you have to like be super amped that you're like opening up this present. You got to look surprised and be super amped on the socks that you just got or whatever it is, right? You got to be like, I'm super pumped on this, this, this scarf that I got or this camo hat that my uncle kept giving me for some weird reason. And I was thinking about all that this last week, and I noticed that during kind of the Christmas season, I think the reason I felt the most uncomfortable was because my family got in the biggest fights. In fact, I remember like people storming out of the house, like flipping each other off and cussing at each other. And I was like, tis the season, right? Like, like great, right? And I remember really feeling the most stressed out or, or yeah, during an uncomfortable kind of during the season because I always felt further away from certain family members than I ever did closer to them. And oddly enough, I think those memories this last week got me really thinking about what is the real meaning of Christmas. And the real meaning of Christmas isn't about, it's not about distance. It's not about fights. It's not about arguments. The real meaning of Christmas is really about reconciliation. It's the opposite of every story I just shared, right? It's all about reconciliation. Just pause and think about this for a moment. When you think of Christmas, the image that most comes to my mind is God initiating the first step in reconciliation towards a rebellious mankind. Right? That, that's really what Christmas is, and he does it in a really unique way. He, he reconciles the God, the divine, to the sinner relationship, i.e. you and me. And Christmas can be about two things. It can be about reconciling the relationship, the heavenly relationship, the vertical relationship we had between God, the divine, and the sinner, you, and also be about the sinner-to-sinner relationships, the horizontal relationships that we have, Right? And so today I want to kind of to explore the story together and, and not in the book of Matthew, because yes, the, the Christmas story is found in the book of Matthew chapter one, the genealogy of Jesus, which is just a list of long names that neither of us can pronounce. So I wanted to uh, not embarrass myself and read Luke chapter two. Um, and so if you have your Bibles, turn there with me. If not, it'll be up on the uh, screens behind me. And I'm going to pause kind of through here um, to kind of talk about some, uh, some events that are going. You can follow along with me. It says this, in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. So there's something interesting that's happening here. Um, this is, so he's making a census, right? He wants to know the details of how many people are in his kingdom. How many people am I the king of? It's actually like a really egotistical thing that he's doing. He's saying, how many people am I the boss of? That's kind of like where, where this is coming from. And so this was the first reg registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of Bethlehem, which is called I'm sorry, which is called Bethlehem because it was from the house and lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with the child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no place for him in the inn. Now you and I have actually been lied to. The, the, the Christmas story that has been most presented to you is actually 
incorrect. It's, it's not really the, the real kind of depiction of the actual events. Um, so we often hear this like this plush, you know, like, like this little manger, right? That's kind of cozy, right? You've seen it on, on even like churches have reenacted it and it's somewhat kind of cozy. That's not actually the way that the real story would have been. In fact, the manger, there was no manger. It was, in fact, it was actually probably a cave. It was a cave with animals and probably animal waste everywhere. That's the real kind of introduction to the story of Christmas. That's where it really took place. And swaddling cloths are actually, most scholars believe they were death cloths because what ended up happening in these type of environments, animals would die. So they would wrap these animals in, these clo- in this cloth and it's all metaphoric. Jesus' very first introduction into the world is him being wrapped in death cloth and it's metaphoric for what will happen and the reason that he came. And continues and says, in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them and glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, fear not for behold, I bring you good news of great joy for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloth and lying in a manger. When suddenly there was an angel of multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those whom he is pleased. Have you ever considered how unusual the Christmas story really is? I mean, just, just think about it for a second. How the main character, who is God, arrives. How unusual of a story that that really is. Let me... Let me paint the picture uh, to, to show you really how extraordinary I, I think this really is. Now, between the Old Testament and the birth of Christ, there's something called the intertestamental period. It's 400 years of silence between the book of Malachi, it's the 39th book of the Old Testament, to the birth of Christ. And in between that time, um, a lot of the Jews had an interesting insight of what their Messiah was going to look like. In fact, the Old Testament and those 400 years of silence really kind of gave the Jews the impression that their Messiah that their savior was going to uh, look a little different than the story we just depicted. In fact, Jesus' birth and arrival, what we just read in Luke chapter two, into the world is completely contrary to the image that Israel had of what their Messiah was going to look like, that the entrance of their Messiah was really gonna look like. See, for those who were raised in Israel who would have read the Torah, that's the Old Testament, or the first five books of the Bible known as the Pentateuch, the books of Moses, they would have an idea of what their Savior was going to look like. They would, they, they would have had promises and deliverers, and, and they, would have, they would have understanding of what this king at least was going to look like. And th- they would have an idea, like it was going to be someone like mighty David. And you guys know the story of David and Goliath. King David's most like, well-known for picking up a rock and sling it into a huge giant's head and then beheading that guy with Goliath's own sword, right? So maybe he's going to be like, maybe he's going to be like King David, that, that incredible leader, maybe that, 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 that warrior that he was like, or maybe, maybe he's going to be like um, Samson, the, the incredible warrior of Samson, the guy with the long hair who could kill a thousand men with the jawbone of a donkey. Maybe he's going to be like Moses with the power to part the Red Seas. All we know is this guy is going to be incredible. And of course, the prophets long ago spoke of what this Messiah, what this Savior was going to look like. He was going to be a king. People would bow in his presence under the weight of his glory. This is what their Messiah, this is what the, 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 the Jewish people thought that their Savior, their Messiah was going to look like. And of course, he was going to have a physical, tangible throne where people would, like I said, bow under the weight of his glory. In fact, even modern day Jews believe that Jesus wasn't who he claimed to be because he didn't come in this way, because he came in in a way that marks his humility and not his authority, not his power. And it's interesting, a a Jew then and a Jew today have a very similar interpretation. In fact, the interpretation that um, made 
kind of the Old Testament kind of set the, the, the painting, the backdrop of what Jesus was gonna look like. They were almost envisioning kind of like the sky opening up, right? And the clouds parting and, and angels like on trumpets announcing that, this, that there was good news that was coming, that there was gonna be a savior. And out from this beaming light comes, you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger in his prime, right? Like that's kind of what they're like, Brad Pitt and Troy, right? That's kind of where the sword, right? On a unicorn or something, right? Like, this, is, this, is the, this is the climactic moment where the savior is coming to mankind. This is what they thought that, that, that their Messiah was gonna look like. Not at all like the story we just read in Luke chapter two. And tonight I wanna ask the question, why? Why, why? Does he need like a, like, like a manager? Like does God need a manager? Why would he come in this way? Why would, why would the king of kings, the Lord of Lord come this way? Why would he show up in this bizarre, this unusual, this particular way? I also want to maybe set, set the scene or paint the picture of, of how divinely orchestrated I believe this event to be because of what was happening in, in culture at that time, what was happening in geography, what was happening um, in, in, in the government. In fact, what was happening in language? What's really interesting is, is the entrance of Jesus into this world really happened at a divinely orchestrated or appointed moment. Let me explain. So century, or a few centuries earlier, in around the 300s, there's a guy named Alexander the Great, conquered the known world, right, and gave one common language, which was Greek, right? He was able to, because he conquered the world, was able to impress upon the world the language that he spoke and the language that his people spoke. So since the Tower of Babel, this is the very first time that there is now kind of a common language that most people would have known, the Greek language. And then what ends up happening, right? We know that they, he dies and falls and his kingdom gets split, uh, split up and then the Romans come and then they conquer. Now they're in charge. What are the Romans really good for? at building, roads. In fact, some of the Roman roads today are, are still there. So now we have a language that most people can speak in, a, in, a, in roads where people can travel. This good news can now travel upon. And so scene one, Luke opens up and kind of takes special interest with this guy named Caesar Augustus. And Caesar Augustus, and I, at least I believe that Luke is beginning to like paint a picture, a portrait that he wants you and I to see. And that a, that a Jewish person at that time would have definitely understood and the, paint, the, kind of the picture that he begins to paint is a comparison between the mighty Augustus, Caesar Augustus, and this little baby boy named Jesus. Augustus is an emperor. He's a king. In fact, he's known for ushering and bringing a, a golden age of peace that no other ruler ever was able to bring in. And in fact, history tells of announcers that would come to the cities that Augustus was going to come to, and they would announce things like, good news is coming. And they would use praise language and they would use words to describe Augustus like savior, king, Elohim, Lord, prince of peace. And so no doubt, I think Luke is drawing kind of this painting, this picture that he wants you and I to see that in the context of this Caesar Augustus, the king of the world, very close, there is a savior that is born. There is a king and there is a Lord who's gonna become the focal point of this story. And it's not this mighty king who everyone calls Prince of Peace, Lord, Savior. You know, I want you to picture it with me. Imagine Augustus in his beautiful palace, right? And his palace would have been incredible. There's some ruins of it today. And, and, and he would be on this, the side of this hill and he glances out and gets to see the known world that he has conquered. High on this hill, within seeing distance, there's this little town named Bethlehem. And in this little town, there are teenagers together in a cold, dark, and damp cave with animals and strangers. And in this cold, dark, and damp cave, there's a teenager named Mary who's giving birth to who the real king is. You know, I don't know, but I, you know, this is what I've been thinking about this last week. 
You know, I think Christians, we so often get focused on like the, the theological truths of Christ. And it may because I, I study the Bible and I'm in Bible school and things like that. But we, I get so focused on the certain theological truths of who Christ is that I so often forget about his humanity. I so often forget that he was just like you and me. He had bones and skin and he was a kid. He was a person. Like, I think so often that I can get focused on that he's all-knowing, that he's all-powerful, that he's eternal, that he's immutable, unchanging, that, that, that all the glorified attributes of Christ, that amazing Christ that we hear and that we worship, where in Scripture, right, it says that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord because of the weight of his glory, right? A lot of Jews believe that Jesus' first coming was going to be like what we Christians believe his second coming is going to be, where every eye will see him. Christians, we get to bow in worship when we see that day but the rest of the world bows in fear because of his authority, because of who he really is. You know, the 33-year-old Jesus that's depicted in movies, Passion of the Christ and other biblical stories and things along those lines is incredible, obviously. And, 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 and the things that you see in movies and stories, yeah, that's incredible. But the story of Christmas, that this all-powerful, self-sufficient being became a baby who would have needed to have his diaper changed. Like that just... So, I don't have kids, right? And near the, 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 I have a crazy corgi dog, but that's the closest that I got right now. So the closest kids that I've really been able to get close to are Cody's kids. And, you know, whether I'm hanging out with Ezra or whatever it is, and, and, and it, I don't know what it is this kind of this year, but the thought that's been going through my mind was the creator of all things was like this at one point. That is that's intense for me to think about, right? That the, the God that created everything was a child, that he would have gotten sick, that he would have needed to, he would have cried all night, you know, wanting his mom to pick him up. That he would need to be, you know, have a tummy ache and need to be burped. Like those things just blow me away. That the most powerful, perfected being to ever exist and will ever exist, the authority that governs all things became an infant. I love the way that, that Paul in, in Philippians 2 writes this. He says that, that he stripped himself, he emptied himself, became nothing, being found in the appearance of men. His nothing, he stripped himself to become what we think is great, us. He stripped himself of all those things. And then in John chapter one, verses one through four, and in verses 14, it says, the word Jesus, Logos, the word dwelt among us, became like us. That's where we get this word incarnate, in the flesh, God in a bod is the way that I memorized it. You know, <laughs> I don't know the extent of what Mary's theology would have been like. I don't know what the disciples, what their theology would have been like and how orthodox or how strong it would have been, but... Mary had to have this moment, right, where she's awoken in the middle of the night by baby Jesus crying. She goes over to him, picks him up, embraces Jesus, and, and, and is just rocking him to sleep. And she has to have this moment where she's staring into the eyes of this baby child that's glancing back at her, recognizing that this child is different, that this child is not like any other child that's ever been born. She's recognizing the truth of this child, I mean, just, just think about how, how bizarre this is for a moment. She's the only person in history to have given birth to the person that created her. That is weird for me to think about, right? Jesus, the second member of the Trinity, may have not existed always in a physical body, but he has existed eternally, right? The second member of the Trinity who has existed for eternity, and in John chapter 1, verse uh, 1 through 4, we learned that that God created all things, yes, including Mary and you and me, and the plants and everything else in this world by speaking those things into existence. And now she is holding her creator. So here we have this unusual, this, 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 unusual, this, this bizarre arrival of a king, 
who came from heaven to be Emmanuel, to be with us. You know, this unusual arrival is good news because it shows that God didn't just cross a, he didn't just cross a room to get to you. He didn't cross a state, a continent, a planet. He crossed a dimension from heaven to earth and then became one of us, incarnate, became in our flesh to become one of us. He put on human skin and bone that could break and, and, and skin that would bleed and bruise. He came from everything to become nothing. He came from, from glory to humility. He came from needing nothing to be completely contingent upon two teenagers. That's not the story I would write. I would make him come like earlier, the sky opening up and things along those lines. I was thinking a lot about this reality this last week, about kind of this, this humble birth of Christ and kind of the, the steps that God took to reconcile to us. I mean, really think about it. The steps that God, the creator of all things, took to reconcile with us. I remember Christmas a few years ago, 2014, um, I was trying to invite my dad to come to church. And I would, I would bribe him to do like random things, like I'll clean your car, you know, like I'll clean the garage. I promise never to put salt in your bed again. You know, like I do the craziest things trying to get my dad to come to church to me because, you know, I've shared before that he was an atheist. So I kind of felt a lot of discouraged, right? I felt like, oh, he always says no, like what's the point of even trying? Finally, like as God gathered the courage, I'm like, the worst he's gonna say is no, right? Like, dad, will you come to church with me? On, you know, during Christmas, during the Christmas Eve services, like the 37 that we have here. <laughs> and he said, yeah. So I was pumped, right? I was amped. And, and we sat down and I always felt like there was going to be this moment where I turned over and he's like a light bulb. And he's like, oh my God, you know, it never happened. But like, I always felt like that there was going to be this moment. And I felt that, that the message that that specific Christmas was such an incredible invitation for my dad. I felt like this was, the, if there was going to be a message that was going to convert the hardness of my dad's heart, it was going to be this message. Let me, let me paint the picture of what that message was. It, it, and if you were here, it was, it was Moy was the main character. He was the prodigal son in this kind of drama, this skit. And, and throughout that, he's a, he's a traveling musician. And, and, and there's this moment where like, you know, he's, there's tension between the father and him. And on the door, on, on the stage, there's this big red door. And over and over, he would, he would, he would want to go up to that door, knock on the door, but then just like, nah, I'm going to walk on the door and walk away. And throughout kind of the skit, the service, there were moments where he'd walk up to the door, want it, and then just not do it. And finally, finally, towards the end of the service, he got up, knocked on the door, and then the father, you see, because at the dinner table, gets up, walks over to the door, opens the door, and the father starts crying. And the father walks through the door frame and embraces the son that's rejected him, the son that has abused his grace, his goodness, and embraces him and says, welcome home. That entire time, I feel like that was the, that was the invitation my dad needed. You know, you know little did I know, just about three weeks from that moment, my dad would finally get to see what was on the other door, on the other side of that door. He'd be forced to because he passed away. You know, to this very day, I, I, don't, I don't know if the father on the other side of that door embraced him or rejected him. But what I do know is the father had tears in his eyes. When you and I die, they're either tears of sadness or they're tears of joy that the father, because he's incredibly excited to see us, or he knows that we won't spend eternity together. I believe that God doesn't want people to go to hell. I think the Christmas story shows us that, of how far he went to reconcile to a sinful, rebellious mankind. He couldn't have gone any farther. He became one of us. He put on human skin. That's how far our God went for us. So I don't think God wants people to, to be eternally damned and, and separated from him. But here's what I know. 
at least the image that I have of that story and my dad and that big red door, it has impacted me. It's imprinted in, the, in my memory of really what Christmas is, what the meaning of Christmas is. And the meaning of Christmas is that we get to bring people to that door. We can't force them to knock. I tried years trying to get my dad to knock. I can't force people to knock. And what's interesting is in John 10, Jesus calls himself the door. He says, I am the door. And John 14, 6 says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I'm the door in which you get to see the Father. You know, this, this kind of Christmas, this, this season, the thing I've been thinking about is, you know, we can't force people to knock, but we can bring them to that door by an invitation. And we can also tell them about the loving Father who's behind that door. God is not this, this kid with a magnifying glass when you mess up, trying to angle the sun and scorch you like an ant. That's not the God that we worship. And a lot of people think that he is that God, right? And, and last time I spoke, I, I spoke um, and I used the word Abba, which is in the Lord's Prayer. It means daddy. That's the way that we get to address the creator of all things. He wants that interpersonal relationship with you and I. The true meaning of Christmas and the good news is that God stepped into the human equation because he wants to be with us. That's what Emmanuel means. Tonight, I want to end really kind of talking about two types of people. Some of you here tonight know the truth. You know it. You could, you could, you could be up here speaking. Right? You could tell me what the good news is, is, what it really is, but you're not living it. My, my challenge to you, my charge to you is when will you commit to walking through that doorframe when will you commit your life fully to Christ? You can't live half in and you can't live half in and half out. That's not the way this works. You're either in or you're out. For some of us, for others, others of us here tonight, this is new news. But not today, but 2,000 years ago. And not in the city of Cyprus, but in the city of Bethlehem, there was a savior that was born and his name was Jesus. But the good news is that you can be reconciled to the creator of this universe and world. And he's not gonna force you to do anything. He's not looking for a specific type of person and he's not asking you to change then come to him. He wants you to come as you are knowing that, he lo- knowing that God loves you too much to leave you on the other side of that door. The greatest desire I think God has for you and I is to continue to walk through that door and stay embraced with him. Christmas means that God doesn't need us, but he didn't want heaven without us. So he came to reconcile with mankind by becoming one of us. That's the real meaning of Christmas. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you for this incredible story of Christmas. I'm humbled that you would come as a baby, as an innocent child, defenseless child. Today, Father, I just pray, Lord, that we can begin this season to continue to see the story of Christmas uh, in a new light, in the beauty that it really is. So Lord, we thank you, we love you for this incredible story. It's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen.